And welcome to Com Talkers. Comics is always the top of our discussion. My name is Brandon. And I'm Mary. And today we kick off one of our favorite imprints from DC Comics. I know it's not technically an independent comic, but it is. And they no longer exist. It is Vertigo Comics. Um, now, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of our favorite comics that we enjoy. Maybe some of our favorite characters from these comics. Um, some will be series. Some will be little short stories. Um, but of course there are a few that we're going to get off the table right now that I figure, or both of us figured everybody has read at one point in time. Um, so let's talk about, the these are, these are big ones that yeah. everyone thinks about when they think about Vertigo. So let's talk about the obvious one. Let's talk about Hellblazer, John Constantine. Um, what was your first experience with John Constantine's Hellblazer? For this run. So I'm going to be completely honest. Um, my first ever exposure to John Constantine, period, was Green Arrow 1988, and I believe it was issue 25. Okay. The exact number, I think, I it might be 26. It's one of those two. Um, and um, it, it has Ollie in Sherwood Forest, where he encounters the Welsh god Sir Nanos and sees the ghost of Robin Hood. It's a beautiful arc. It's my favorite arc from Green Arrow 1988. And John Constantine is there, uh, but you don't really know it's John Constantine because um, it's just some other blonde guy being mean to Ollie. And it's like, okay, this is another Thursday. Um, and then one of my friends pointed out to me that this is John Constantine. And I was like, all my in my head, all I had ever heard about John Constantine was that he was magic. So my at that age, I was like, I was like 11 or 12. Um, I was like the wizard guy and so then I looked him up and um of course if you look up John Constantine the first thing you find out about is Hellblazer and um I was in love from the first issue um John Constantine is a delight of working class um sort of like social commentary he is an incredible look into like systems and cycles of abuse into all of these wonderful things that make him this cocktail of an extremely messed up individual i would like to study like a bug the man is so kafka-esque um i adore him he is awful <laughs> that is what i love about him um is because he's not meant to be this sort of traditional hero right like the entire point of John Constantine is that he is not. I guess it's Constantine, but um, am I going to listen to the people that have seen this man manifest to them physically? No, it's Constantine to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I Hellblazer is a very special place in my heart. Um, I have a lot of friends who are extremely obsessed with it. Um, and much like them, I am deeply saddened by what Constantine has been turned into in modern DC, because where is he? That's not the same man. Why you, did you sanitize him? You, well, why Why did you sand down all of his rough edges? You've right. created something he's not. Um, but I would definitely read Hellblazer. Um, I love Hellblazer. I don't want to give too much away because... I think everyone should get to experience it fresh um, 
because that was one of my favorite things is that one of my friends told me to read it is that they refused to tell me anything about it other than you need to read this. And so getting to experience it truly for the first time with no outside influence was like magic. Um, like little 12 year old Mary's mind, like it was awesome. <laughs> and this is one of those characters that I agree with you. Like they, they try to do something with them with Justice League Dark, which was like, okay, let's see where this goes. And then it just fell off. And it was just one of those characters like... And then they had that new series where he was like sparkly. And I was like, this is... What did you do to him? He made a deal with a sparkling devil or a demon. There we go. I'm just... It it was just one of those... it's just one of those characters that this is a character that screened for a vertigo series and it worked like i i'm a fan and mary knows this too i do like a lot of garth Ennis's stories um certain ones not i'm not a big fan of all of them but one of them i grew up with and shocker this was actually a book that i was given a lot was punisher um he did the i believe he did the marvel knight series plus he also did the um max series that punisher had and i love the darkness of him and i'm gonna say it right now hellblazer some of his best comics come from garth ennis and i got attracted to him more through punisher which was a weird kind of thing because punisher and him have never interacted but i loved garth ennis so going from him, and I was like, I kind of want to read more from Garth Ennis, and I found Hellblazer. I love John Constantine, and yes, I will say Constantine fans. I am not a Constantine fan. I don't like that. It's Constantine. Even the movies say Constantine too to me. It's Constantine. The shows even say it. I'm leaving it. Um. Alan Moore can fight me, but he has to go through his own astral projection of John Constantine to do it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Even the cartoon movies and DC, what DC puts out is Constantine. So at this point, it's Constantine. I just, I enjoy Constantine's character. I love, it's like you said, he's not meant to be a hero. He's, no, he doesn't want to be. He yeah. like actively fights against it. But then he awkwardly goes right to and like, you know, like he'll just go right into being the hero that he needs to be, not what everybody expects him to be. The question I have for you, because like I said, I I'm I was drawn more for Garth Ennis's kind of take on the character. Was there a writer that went for you that you went automatically? I want to read this. I'm going to be so completely honest. Um, No, no. Okay. And I honestly and I. A lot of times when I'm reading prolonged characters, unless there is something I actively despise, I don't remember who wrote that. <laughs> um, which is why I have it out for Chuck Dixon and Judd Winnick, but like <laughs> genuine generally, um, also Scott Labdell, um, you know, the big ones, my enemies, Gail Simone. And <laughs> aside from like the writers who like whose stuff I just think is very poor quality and that is like clearly not good I don't tend to remember who they are um which feels rude 
But a lot of times to me, it's like, you didn't take me out of my suspension of disbelief. You didn't take me out of the story. It felt the same. And to me, that's a compliment because that tells me I don't have to be like, who wrote this? Because if I have to ask myself that question, I feel like you've kind of failed in your job as a storyteller. Right. Now, um, and again, I, I got into Hellblazer not necessarily through following a writer. I got into Hellblazer because I saw him in a Green Arrow comic and was like, who is that guy? Now, <laughs> just to confirm, that was during Grail's run too, right? Yes, that is during Grail's run. Okay. I was going to say, when you said 1988, I was like, that has to be Grail then. So. Yeah, so um, it doesn't switch from Grail until like, I think it's issue 90. Okay. Because what was it? Because he wasn't the one that killed off Oliver, if I'm not mistaken. No, that was Chuck Dixon. That, uh, yeah, that's probably why we all hate Chuck Dixon too. That was um Kelly Puckett and Chuck Dixon, I believe. I can't remember specifically which one at the moment. But it was one of the two. Uh it was Dixon. It was Dixon. It was, it was Dixon. Okay. Kelly Puckett introduced Connor and then Dixon killed off Ollie in the plane crash. Yeah. Now the other one I want to talk about too with this before we jump in is Neil Gaiman's or Neil um Neil Gaiman, Gaiman yeah. I I did really like his, but I'm I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan in general. Yes. Um. I I love his novels. I I think he's wonderful. He, he, I think he's very talented. Um. One of one of my dear friends has a parasocial nemesis relationship with him, and it is the funniest thing to observe. It, but mind you, too, th- there was an issue. Um. That when I was doing some research on it as well, because it's been a while since I've read Hellblazer, but issue twenty seven, which is called Hold Me. And it actually brings back Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean, which is also known for Sandman. And we'll get into Sandman here in a second, because that's one of the other ones we're going to bring up that's kind of like an obvious pick that we're going to talk about. Um, They are just really great. And then having the writers that had come after them a little bit too, like Garth Ennis and stuff, just really picked up on that and just moved forward. And it was really great. Hellblazer fans, you guys need to read this. If you are a big Johnson John Constantine fan and you want to read a good series, don't read nowadays. Go right to Hellblazer. And you're going to enjoy the story just as much as we do. It's so good. The social commentary that is told through John Constantine is incredible. And um, I think a lot of times people want to sanitize it because they have this concept that because the comic book industry is primarily caters to American audiences, that allowing Constantine to exist within his actual context of um, British class politics is going to alienate fans. Um, But given the uh, wealth inequality within the country right now, I think we need old Constantine. Um, I think he would be good for us. I think, I think, I think it would be nice. <laughs> now, since we're on the talk of Neil Gaiman and um, Dave McKean, let's 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 talk about Sandman. Now, Sandman was another big one that went to Vertigo. But I love Sandman. <laughs> it's a um a comic of all time. I love it. It's, it's so good. Um, and so so much of it that I love is that. In a period where comics are notoriously sexist and homophobic and racist, um, Sandman dares to go, but what if we weren't? Yeah. <laughs> um, and what if we continued to be that push for acceptance that comics began as? 
and but bringing it to a new horizon and a new generation and it's just so the storytelling is so good one of my favorite issues still to this day is and i believe it was no gaiman who did this um where you had morbius really like screw with martian manhunter and yeah it's like it's a it's it's kind of like he did a Minecraft on him. And it really put Martian Manhunter in a situation where he didn't know what to do. And it made me laugh. It was just one of those moments that was just like, you're supposed to feel sorry for him, but even then it was kind of like, that was actually kind of funny. Like, you, you want to laugh, but you don't. Neil Gaiman's run on this is, pro- this is by far probably one of the most scariest comics that I have ever read other than Hellblazer and I enjoy it it's one of those comics that really dive deep in a lot of things that you would never think it's like you said it's like everything that some most people in the world are so against and he flips the script on and says what if this isn't and you brought up a good point. And and he he specifically even calls out like those bigotries within the text. It's not this is a world where those aren't there. It's this is a world where they are there, but I'm showing you a different way to be. Yeah. Um, which is what Gaiman does in so many of his works. I mean, that's why Good Omens is as monumental as it is. Um, is because Gaiman and Pratchett both looked at the world and said, but it doesn't have to be this way. And individual people can make those changes. And he really shows that through Sandman is how each individual character is able to impact the world around them in so many different ways. And I love that it's in the eyes of Morbius. Like you kind of see his take on the world too and see how things are different. Now, I have to ask you, and I know you're not a big movie show person. Have you watched the Sandman show? I have not, but I have not because I am trying to convince my boyfriend to read Sandman and then watch the show with me. They... Um, but he has still not read the first trade of Basilisk that I lent to him almost a year ago. So... <laughs> <laughs> we will see. I, I think if he reads it, though, I think he'll be more interested Um with see sand. i want see he's 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 more willing to experiment with indies because he's not a comic person um but i'm like it feels like an indie though so it, like because it's not really like it's, it's not the dc universe it, it is dc but it's not dc kind of does its own thing but he, he needs to try it characters. yeah but it's the show really does that too one of my favorite episodes still to this day in that and, and i know there's mixed feelings about the show I enjoy the guy they got from Morbius. I think he's great for that role. And just his personality alone. Um, But I love the episode with death. And it just really, like, you see, like, a sympathetic side of her. And, again, you wouldn't have these moments without Neil Gaiman's comics. And Neil Gaiman, I believe, came out and even said he was a fan of the show. And that eating things better. He was heavily involved in it, I believe. Um, I loved their casting choices from what I saw, just like looking at who they had play characters. Um, I was very, I was very excited specifically with their casting for death. I was 
overjoyed. Yeah, she she did a phenomenal job for death. And kind of what I love too is that she made Dream or Morbius more too kind of understand the world that he's around. That you know, and that her- is so much of Death's role. And I think that's one of my favorite things about it is the role that Death has. Because rather than being this scary nothingness, she's warm. Yeah, she, one, like, I love the scenes that they show with her. And, and I know they do in the comics as well, that she goes around actually just like it's time. And, and like only the person that's about to die can only see her. And it's it's okay you know like she she even tells morbius she does not take pleasure in this and but she she, is a loving death which i think is the best way to describe how she portrayed it's yeah it it, it is really good how they do these scenes um but sandman alone is just great overall it is one of my favorite comic book series of all time. Again, this is, we're not going to go into detailed details because we want you guys to go read this. Sandman is one of those comics you need to go read. It's not a comic that, it, it's not hard to get access to now. You They may trade. Especially pitch- nowadays. Um, yeah. For a while it was a little difficult, but now that it's been adapted, it is everything. Yeah, it, it's literally been reprinted, everything. So if you guys really want to read go read these and now they've made spinoff series with some of the characters they've introduced and everything so it's really great to see them um now the next one we're going to talk about too is one i have to admit right now i'm going to have mary introduce i have never read this so fans please do not do not come down on me please on this so mary why don't you introduce the next one so the next one um and i think it's very funny that um Brandon was like, oh yeah, Sandman's the scariest comic I've ever read because I know he hasn't read Sweet Tooth. <laughs> um, because he's afraid to read Sweet Tooth. Not so much I'm afraid. I just look at that comic and I go, okay, I read it. And then I look and I'm like, next time. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, I think one of the one of the things now first of all it's hard to go wrong with Jeff Lemire when he gets to write what he actually wants to write right which is uh always a delight because he never fails you Mm -hmm. if that man gets to write his own idea it's gonna be great yes I love his indie work his work on Vertigo similarly incredible yes um and that's what i really loved about the concept of sweet tooth because like fundamentally gus the main character is the little dear boy who is being essentially raised in like a weird evangelical cult but it's just his household (laughs) and he loves his father but he wants to escape he he feels and he he learns that 
past all the trees that surround their house deep in the woods. It is not fire and brimstone. It is just the world. And Gus, all he longs for all the time is freedom. And the chance to kind of just exist as he is. I'm trying not to give too much away because if I say anything more, I'm going to spoil the whole plot of this comic. So it's okay, Mary. If you can't, I wouldn't worry about because, like you said, you don't want to spoil the comics. I don't want to spoil it. Um, I feel like a lot of people they know about Sweet Tooth now because it was such a big thing back in 2021. Um, it was like the show, I think, for a while. Yeah. Um, and it got a sequel called The Return in 2020. Um, that was a six issue sequel. Um, that was like almost like kind of sort of a retelling in some ways um of the story was it jeff lemire that came back and did it or was yeah it... oh wow why wouldn't... i'm like 99 percent sure that's why i said to me why wouldn't you want to tell another story if not try to expand the story not tell retell a story that you've already wrote I, I think it was I think it was because this was around when they were announcing that the show was going to happen um, that they were like hey <laughs> hey Jeff um, but okay okay I figured it out I figured out how to I figured out how to sell sweet to people without spoiling it uh, it took way too long um so um, some people have described Sweet Tooth as um, Mad Max meets Bambi, which, yeah, kind of. Um, it's, um, it's a rural post-apocalyptic setting, animal-human hybrids. If you're into sci-fi horror, this is for you. If you're into religious occult horror, this is for you. If you like cute animal things, also somehow for you. <laughs> and if you're just really into like action flicks, also for you. Um, gratuitous violence and gore. Hey, you're gonna like this. Um, and it's honestly, it's not a super long read. The original run is 40 issues. So it's a nice, nice little self-contained story there. Um, it's easy to read. Um, there's a lot going on, but the story is very easy to read. Um, you're not necessarily going to have to go back and be like, wait, what just happened? Unless you're like, oh my God, what? <laughs> like in shock, not in confusion. Um, it's an incredibly well done story. Um, again, Jeff Lemire, Jeff Lemire never misses. Um, he's even does the art. Yeah. 
and um which i think adds to it because the way he draws eyes is so haunting see i agree with you there on that everyone looks cursed in his art and it adds so much i agree with you there because i do have a book on my list um that i'd like to go over soon um and he does the same thing and he writes and he draws i love he just puts so many lines under their eyes and i'm like something something is not right here (laughs) um but whatever's wrong with it i like it (laughs) (laughs) now the last one we want to bring up before we go into our list is of course grant morrison's run and we're gonna we're not gonna say doom patrol because i i i'm what was it? I, I went right away. I'm like, I'm putting that on my list. I don't care because there's not a lot of fans out here by me that loves Doom Patrol. And yeah. I was like, everyone's going to talk about Doom Patrol because on my side of the country, people do. They like, for me, and I'll talk about that here in a little bit, but the last one we're going to bring up is another Grant Morrison run, which was kind of one of the odd ones to bring to Vertigo, I thought, in my eyes, which was Animal Man. But Animal Man in this... Hey. I liked the fact that they did that. Brought on the vertigo. There, there's something about wholesome family man Buddy Baker getting dragged into DC's original dark li- like black label. Yeah. That I adore. Just the concept of bringing him, who should be like the pinnacle of like body horror in DC, to. I don't know. I, I liked the concept and then I read it and I liked it even more. Like, I will still say to this day, um, Grant Morrison's run on Animal Man is by far my favorite. Um, I don't think anybody has ever hit that tier that would ever outdo Grant Morrison's run on it. He is the reason why Animal Man is somewhat what he is today. Um, and again, Grant Morrison's weird, but we love his weirdness. He's that... yeah. They they are an incredible writer. Yeah, he he he. Yeah, it's it's great to see it. Um, like I know one of them that I enjoy a lot is the Coyote Gospel. That's one of my favorite stories with Grant Morrison with Buddy Baker. Um, that that's probably my favorite as well. <laughs> uh, um, I wish Bryce was here because I'm sure he would have opinions. <laughs> Or when remember when Animal Man meets Grant Morrison? <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> but but Grant Morrison's run on this actually set standards for Animal Man because I believe he is the one that made him vegan. He is the one that made him not eat his own what he uses his powers off of. Or it's like he made he did a lot of really they did it for a lot of really incredible character work yeah um and i feel like i feel like being able to take buddy to vertigo is what let them do that because vertigo gave you a lot more freedom than the main editorial office i i um Vertigo was for the longest time essentially what the black label books are now. This was where you went if you had something that DC was like, this doesn't go with the Comics Code Authority, does it? (laughs) (laughs) Unless you were Green Arrow, in which case you just got to be there? Question? 
<laughs> um, Mike Grell, how did you get away with that? <laughs> but everyone else pretty much got quarantined over into Vertigo for a lot of that stuff. You know, there is one series I could see why it went to Vertigo, and that was the killing of his family. It kind of that that I could understand more. And I agree with you. Like there are parts now that's like, okay, you wouldn't think to have Buddy a veggie or a veggie or a vegan, or you wouldn't think of doing some of the stuff they did with him. And I agree with you there. Like to me, it just was one of those weird characters that like out of everybody you could control, you go with Buddy Baker and old man as the one person that you go, hey, like I can understand the question. You know, for example, or you could understand characters like that that need that grittier back to. But yeah, see, and that that's why see to me it made sense. Like now, like I see what you're saying there. I just was like when they announced, like, now mind you, we weren't born when that was. <laughs> but you would think when you were like, okay, you got Sandman, okay, awesome. You got Hellblazer, okay, Animal Man. It's just like the odd one. It was just one of those like that's more and what I mean more. It's I not feel like, like I feel it. like that's what made it made sense to me though. Was that like because keeping in mind too that like well yeah Vertigo was separate like Hellblazer at that point was getting more and more connected with mainstream DC due to Zatanna. So yeah. they were branching more into the Justice League and these more typically wholesome heroes. And so to bring one of them down, I'm glad they chose Buddy. You chose Buddy out of everybody. Like um, because I feel like the others, because when you could think of them, you could think of something more gritty, that those were too obvious of choices. That those were the kinds of stories you would have already seen. Got a point there. I but think in order to do something new and fresh. Which, keeping in mind, this was the era of DC Comics where they were still capable of original thought. Um, and they weren't just copying 90s comics. <laughs> Tom Taylor. Um, <laughs> they could... <laughs> He's not even doing it well. Um, this has but... just become a bashing session of writers. I've, I've enjoyed some Chuck Dixon writing. He writes a great Connor Hawk. Um, but I I do I do think that like Buddy being someone who had not had those kind of stories, um, where you now have to go, well, how would he react? What would a character who we have marketed as wholesome what happens if he doesn't get the chance to be i see your point there that makes 10 times more sense than what i was thinking like to me it was just like like you said yeah you if you would have went with somebody like say for example i know you don't like talking about this character for say batman for example why do you need to bring him to vertigo like he's already dark he's already brooding you don't need any more like the question is the only one that i kind of felt like you could have done that with and it's just because he's always known for that oh he's just going to go behind the scenes and grab stuff as a question you could have went somewhere with him there you could have i i kind of like that the question didn't though because i feel like especially in this era with charlie that 
it's kind of as serious as he is the levity that he has i think doesn't necessarily lend itself to vertigo you got a point there now let's ask this before we really jump into questions are there since like animal man for example and one of the first ones i'm going to talk about is doom patrol are there characters that you wish they would have went hey we should have brought this character to vertigo I'm going to be so completely honest with you. My brain immediately went to Ted Cruz. That don't shock me. I could see that. I really try. I know. I know. I'm picturing him in that really awful cat suit of his. Like, you know, the one that looks really bad, like where it's like too big and like you can tell there's like patches on it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like the Doc Shaner Ted Grant. Yes. Yeah. So that specific image of Ted Grant in my head, I'm picturing on a Vertigo comic. You want me to tell you the one that I would love to see them do? I wish they would have done because we didn't get that then till um, Tom King's run. Mir- Mr. Miracle. I think Mr. Miracle would have made a great Vertigo comic. It no, would have made that. A- yes, it does not surprise me at all coming from you. I love Mr. Miracle. It's like, granted, I know we disagree on Tom King stuff there, but Tom King's run on it was actually really good. It took him into a different direction and then that's what made me kind of wonder like what would have it been like if he went to vertigo and i think they could have went really like because mind you scott freeze kind of history in comics is a little weird because mind you he's a new guy but having that chance to really explore things with him that you wouldn't think from a mainstream comic i think would have been interesting to see Ooh, okay. Also, do you know who else could be really interesting in a Vertigo comic? Also kind of from this perspective of like, he's not who you would think they would pull. Mm. Jericho. Yeah, I could see that. I really truly. It would, it, would, it would work really, really well for him because so often when they try to explore the fact that, you know, his, his dad is Slade Wilson, um, they don't do it in a way where Joey is the focus anymore. You, you want me to tell you a villain that I would have loved to seen? And I know they we've done that in our 52. Um, I would have loved to seen what they would have done with Black Adam. Just for I was some... also expecting that from you. You were thinking that from me overall? I was I was expecting um when when you were like, who would you ask up going? He's either gonna say um John Stewart, Scott Free. <laughs> Or Black Adam. And I was like, it's not going to be Jon Stewart. Yeah, so I, I was like, which one? Yeah, <laughs> like, like Jon Stewart for me, I think they've kind of covered that with him already. That I wouldn't really put him in the Vertigo imprint. Mr. Miracle, it would just be interesting to see. But Black Adam, I think I would have loved that more. And then seen what they did with them in 52. And kind of see how that story really broods. Because... All we really know him as until the Power of Shazam storyline is really he's just just like a constant thorn in Shazam's side or Captain Marvel's side. And it wasn't really till 52 and the Power of Shazam where you really dive deep into him. And it's like, what if they did that with Vertigo? But those two would probably be the two I would go with the most. I think those two would work. Mr. Miracle is just the odd but just to see how Tom Keen did, it's kind of like, well, why couldn't I have Vertigo done this? So, but yeah. So let's jump into our list. And if you don't mind, I'll stay on the Grant Morrison side if you want me to go first, because we're going to talk about the more obvious one, but it's on my list. It's Doom Patrol. 
Doom Patrol by far is one of my favorite series of all time. Grant Morrison came in at issue 19 after two a writer and an artist really could not get their heads together at all. I can't remember even who wrote or who drew, but they just did not get along. And here comes Grant Morrison. And Grant Morrison, if you guys love the show, then you better think Grant Morrison. Because Grant Morrison is what took this team into a really weird state. Because they were popular in the 60s for a little bit with Gardner Fox. And then yeah. And and then they did the death of the Doom Patrol. And then they tried to bring them back with Robot Man. And it just did not hit well. It was in a DC Presents comic. And it just did not hit. Then here comes this series. And it almost died off until Grant Morrison came in. And just rejuvenated the team. He starts off with one of the biggest ones crawling through the wreckage, which we've covered in the past. Um, and this is where you get some really interesting characters, including Crazy Jane. Crazy Jane is one of his biggest creations. Um, if you guys don't know who Crazy Jane is, um, she is a woman who has 64 different personalities. And each 64 personalities have different abilities or powers. Um, much like Legion in his early iterations um, from Marvel Comics. All, all I'm going to say is, um, and I'll go over some of the other points I have here. It is super weird, fans. But all I'm going to say is if you've never read Doom Patrol, stick to the course. Just read them. Because they make they may not make sense to you at points, but just keep on reading because it will. And it it's one of those books that explains itself later. Yeah, it does a lot. And let, let's just go over, like I said, after we talked about crawling through the wreckage a little bit, and they also reintroduced in that series on um, Cliff Steel, um, which is Robot Man, and on top of it, Regis, um, which is a so it was an intersex version of Negative Man, um, the Red Jack saga, um, which introduces us to Red Jack, which is an equivalent of Jack the River Ripper who feeds off pain of torturing his victims and turning them into butterflies. Um, the panic or the painting that ate Paris um, introduces the concept of the underground, which is a big part of crazy Jane. Um, this is where all her personalities, whatever one is not present, go and hide pretty much like a self thing in her mind. Um, actually has an awesome crossover with the justice league, which Grant Morrison ended up going to write later on with the JLA um but it also introduces us to mr nobody which is a very popular villain if you watch the shows played by alan tunic um which is amazing flex metallo makes his first appearance here um willoughby kipling and the cult of the unwritten book and also the candle maker saga um which also introduces some main characters like beard hunter sexman and candle maker um like we said just Go with the flow. Now, I have to ask Mary really quickly, what was your take? Because I know you said on your neck of the woods, it's very popular. Yes. What was your take on your first apparent or first outing with Doom Patrol? So, um, this is this might shock you a little bit, but I didn't get into Doom Patrol until college. Um, so I'm fairly new to Doom Patrol, all things considered. Um, I like knew about Doom Patrol, but I didn't know Doom Patrol. Um, and I was actually, actually, my college advisor, who was a medievalist, told me to read Doom Patrol. Um, thank you, Janet. <laughs> um, 
and it was so weird. Um, so I had a lot of, um, those of you who have heard, listened to me talk a lot before, you know that my academic focus is history of disability medicine. Um, that's my thing. And I, I was mentioning, I was talking to my advisor who used to be a nurse, um, who is now a historian who um, has given talks on medical history and disability medicine to the NIH. Um, we love Janet. Um, and so she and I were having a wonderful conversation. I was just hanging out in her office about um, portrayals of like disability in media and how those can like in impact how disability is viewed by the public. Because at this point I was looking into applying to grad schools and talking about like the ugly laws and PT Barnum sideshows. It was a whole thing, it was a whole thing. I was very, I was having a very interesting senior year of college. <laughs> um, and she was like, you should read Doom Patrol. And I was like, you've never recommended a comic book to me before ever in my life. I was like, I didn't know you knew what comic books were because she didn't know what the Magic Treehouse books were. So I was like, this is weird. This feels wrong. And she was like, no, 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 you need to read them. Um, and so she was, she was very interested. Her daughters had gotten her hooked on it because um, she, they had, a lot of conversations both of her daughters um one of them is in healthcare um just like she was and um so they they have a whole bunch of conversations about um like how disability is portrayed because th they've been nurses right um like this is something that they deal with intimately and the x-men are kind of like this quintessential like here's an allegory um and they don't always hit um, if you've seen any criticism of the X-Men by anyone who is an actual marginalized person, um, they have very valid points. <laughs> um, and Doom Patrol is kind of like the counter to that, where it didn't necessarily set out, it's not an allegory, these just are disabled characters who happen to have superpowers. And sometimes the superpowers are what disables them. Right. And it's this, it's this counterpoint where the characters in Doom Patrol very much are, are struggling with the actual ramifications of ableism due to their disabilities. And it's not just imaginary racism against superpowers where it doesn't make sense because there are other people with superpowers who aren't hated for no reason. Um, like, it, it, it's, it's a significantly better version of the X-Men allegory. And Janet was like, you need to read this. And I did anything that woman told me to do. So I did. <laughs> now, And then I went to my thesis advisor and I was like, yo, Ken, you got to read this. And he was like, not now, I'm busy. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so um, actually um, our friend Erica, who we had on for Transformers, actually, she had to read Doom Patrol for one of her classes for her PhD in English Lit for talking about allegory, <laughs> um, which I love. I love. And um, it was really funny because I'm getting messages. And she's like, I remember when you read this. And she was like, and you did not talk to me about it. And she's like, I'm kind of mad at you. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I got a whole bunch of like, why did you not? tell me this happens when I told you I had to read Doom Patrol because she was like reading like the original 1960s <laughs> and she was like Mary 
why did you let me go in unprepared? <laughs> some wild stuff happens in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. So you're not the only one that did that, though. I actually was introduced to this also in college. Um, I was actually in my junior college here um, in my city here. And as in a critical reading class, I have to take that in order to graduate with my associates. And my professor, she comes up to me and she goes, you tend to like you do better with the weird assignments I give you more than the actual assignments and I go oh it's just more interesting because it's more diving in and she goes well let me introduce you to a comic because I know you're into comics I go okay she goes Doom Patrol now mind you I've already been introduced to the show at this point so the show I always found weird but it was interesting weird it was like okay and she goes, and then she goes, I'm talking Grant Morrison. I'm like, well, I know that dude. I, I, I've i read most of his comics. He's kind of weird, but okay. Let's attempt it. And I read Crawling Through the Wreckage and I went, oh boy, I'm in for a ride. And just continue reading it. His run only. I do not recommend any other runs. Like it, I like Gardner Fox's a little bit, but not compared to Grant Morrison's. Grant Morrison is set the standard for Doom Patrol at this point they really did like you know these characters that you love today in the shows and everything because of grant morrison and you could have asked anybody else to write that so yeah my first one i'm going to talk like i said i've already talked about is doom patrol so i'm gonna turn it over to mary to go over hers yeah so i went um there's a there's a weird amount of vampire fiction on my list i'm not gonna lie (laughs) Um, I didn't realize how much of this was vampire fiction until I had finished my list. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is kind of embarrassing um, for someone who's never read Twilight to have this much vampire fiction on a list. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> um, this being said, I do believe having only seen and forced to watch the Twilight movies that all of these are significantly better and you should read them. <laughs> Anything's better than Twilight fans. Sorry. Um and my my we're having a great night. My first my first one is um American Vampire by right. Scott Snyder, Stephen King, and Raphael Albuquerque. Um and it's now, Stephen, Stephen King is, like, sort of involved. He's involved in issues one through five. And the rest of it is Scott Snyder. So, like, every, most, it's, it's credited as Scott Snyder. And then they're like, oh, yeah, Stephen King was here. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think is hysterical for a horror comic to be like, oh, yeah, and also Stephen King, I guess. <laughs> um... So it was originally published under the Vertigo imprint and then continued under the Black Label imprint after Vertigo shut down. Um, and it's a really, it's a really interesting look into vampirism, uh, which is what I was drawn to about it because it imagines vampires as a population of like different secret species. And I think... I'm into cryptozoology. I think it's neat. Um, I thought this was a hysterical way to pr- talk about vampires. Um, 
as being a separate secret species because it reminded me almost of like the way that vampires are in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter which by the way you should read that book and um I knew you were gonna bring it up one way or another you're gonna bring up Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter (laughs) I love that book and I love its sequel and you should read them and I've told Brandon this like eight times but um and so it, it looks at the movement of vampires and how this secret species evolves and diverges and um the interspecies conflict between these divergent branches of vampires throughout human history um but the focus which is what i love because it was like old west vampires which i think is objectively the funniest place you could put a vampire like i don't know something about putting in a, a vampire in a cowboy suit makes me laugh every time um, and so it's a bloodline of American vampires that were born in the American West in the late 19th century. Um, and I, I love that the first one of this branch is called Skinner Sweet, who just wakes up as a vampire. Um, I apps I adore all about it. Um, and so the first story takes place in 1925, which I think is a really is really interesting um because it it's told from the point of view the first bit by um, Stephen King is told by an aspiring actress in LA in the 20s um who becomes the second American vampire and it chronicles her quest for revenge against those who turned her into a vampire which is always neat to me Mm -hmm. um and then there's the second is a writer at a book conference due to the re-editing of his book, Bad Blood. Um, so that's the Stephen King part. Sorry, I'm, I I got them confused. Stephen King is on like the B story for issues one through five. Um, and so and he claims that his work, which has long been considered a fictional Western terror story, is actually based on true events, which he has witnessed. So he is kind of like, he kind of gets to pretend to be... Um, like skin her sweet in a way it's a sort of uh, it's like implied mm-hmm. um i love it um american vampire it's great fun um it's a good western it's a vampire story it's delightful better than twilight <laughs> highly recommend um and literally i think how there there are more vampires coming um like literally the second one of my list is also vampires i think that's, so, that's our, i think that's going to be our episode name now better better than twilight <laughs> and moving over to brandon for his next pick so <laughs> my next one is another iteration that they brought from dc comics to vertigo i'm going with sergeant rock between hell and a hard place now I know a lot of fans are going to look at me and they go, the story sucked. There's There are good things about this story. And what I love too about the story is that it just doesn't, it doesn't make you solve the case by words. You have to be paying attention to the art, which Mary knows I'm a fan of that. Like I love looking at artwork and letting that tell me the story at points than to just read the words. I hyperanalyze text. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, of course, written by Brian um, Asarello, but it brings back an iconic person for Sergeant Rock, which is Joe Kubert. He is, of course, the main artist of Our Army 
at war. Um, and he doesn't miss a beat with it. His artwork is amazing throughout this story. And it's like we said, pretty much what it is and why I would pitch it this way is that it puts Sergeant Rock and Easy Company in a situation they're not known for. And it's like a murder mystery. Um, four prisoners, um, German prisoners out of five were brutally murdered, and the fifth one escaped. So Sergeant Rock is now put in this predicament where he has to figure out if the murderer was an Easy Company member or was it the fifth member. Now, I'm not going to tell you who it is. That's where I love Joe Kubert's artwork is that you have to pay attention. That you have to pay attention to the details to tell who did this. And I know people don't like that. It's the whole thing of, though, that not every story is going to be told to you by words. You have to pay attention to that. And I love that kind of stuff. My next one was started wrong between hell and a hard place. So I'm turning back over to Mary to go over her next one. The bitch. Yeah. So this one, I do actually have to start by talking about the art. Um, because it is done mostly in illustrative watercolor which is really interesting for a comic book mm -hmm. um so this is originally actually printed by marvel under its epic imprint and then re-released by dc under vertigo in 1996 so it's originally an 87 comic from marvel uh but it was re-released by vertigo so it counts um yep. and as you remember from my Spider-Man list, I'm a huge J.M. DeMatteis fan. Um, we are back again with J.M. DeMatteis. Um, illustrated by Kent Williams, Blood, A Tale. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, and this is a really weird book. But I love it. Um, so it goes back and forth between two different plots. Um, and they don't initially seem connected. Um, so one story features an extremely ancient king who is being visited by an unusual spirit. And as he dies, the spirit tells him stories. Um, and then the other one, which is the main story, um, focuses on one man's life. He was found by two women floating in a river. Um, and the fo story follows him as he grows up and leaves to establish his own life. Um, and it's a story about finding your humanity and, like, dealing with, like, occult supernatural stuff and, like, the horrors of existence. Um, and it's a four-issue comic. It's such a quick read. It's incredible. Um, if you liked Craven's Last Hunt, you will like this. Now you got me interested because you know I'm a big fan of Craven's Last Hunt. Um, but I, yeah, I've never read that, so now I'm kind of interested to see. But I know something else. And um, when I when I first looked into this, because I was like, because I found it anytime I googled it to find more information, it was coming up as both Marvel and DC, and I was like, no. What does it happen <laughs> very often blasphemy um and so Demetrius had originally gotten an offer from marvel and he took it 
And then Marvel was like, yeah, we can't keep re-releasing it. But he was released from his contract and it was his intellectual property due to the whole epic thing. And an editor from DC, so his editor at Marvel basically connected him to an editor at Vertigo who was like, we will take this. Um, and so it got re-released because there was such a clamoring for it. It's so good. The next characters I'm going to bring up is also Golden Age, re-imaged. And for fans that love our history through comics, you will know that this team was in the book, and we did cover it a little bit in our history through comics in DC The New Frontier. Let's see. Let's see if Mary knows this. I can't remember their name. But you know, oh, it's the losers, isn't it? It's the losers. Um, it this, just came to me, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" This revamp was actually done by Andy Diggle, and Jock was the drawer or the illustrator of it. And pretty much what I love about this is, of course, the losers are a special ops team in World War II at this time, but for this revamp, it modernizes. Um, the losers are a covert ops task force who are now labeled traitors after disobeying orders from their handler max which is of course we find out is the betrayer there is a movie about this so it's pretty knowledgeable who turns on them um and pretty much they are left for dead but the team does survive um and they want revenge so and they also want to take their names off a secret cia death list um so the losers regroup and conduct covert operations against the CIA and their interests. Um, this was a 32-issue run um, from August 2003 to March 2006. Um, this is, it's kind of a fun run. It's, it's again, things I don't think DC would have gotten away with, so I'm kind of glad it went to Vertigo. Um, but it's so interesting to read. Um, of course, the movie is based around this run, um, and it has stars like Zoe Saldana, Chris Evans is in this. There's a lot of big name actors in this. Idris Elba is another big one, um, but it's a fun run, and it is it's a very short run, 32 issues. Yeah, it's long in some ways, but it's compared to others, it's kind of one of their shorter runs. I enjoy it because it's just this whole revenge tale. It's not what you would think the losers are. And I just enjoy the revamp. I think we needed that for this team because it was a team other than, I hate to say it this way, and Mary, maybe you can correct me, other than DC and the New Frontier, you really don't see the losers other than they don't. this. And I just really enjoy it. And I love that they, even during their operations, they see how much their their handler actually has control over the CIA. And it really kind of like disturbs them a little bit. It kind of shakes them up. Like, oh, wow, we might not be able to do this as easy as we thought. And it's just a fun story. I would tell fans, this is a very casual read. You can read it any day. They're pretty, they're not as accessible as they used to be. But you can, you can probably buy them. What was that? I know you can buy them by trade now on certain areas or cons or things like that. So, yeah, losers are going to be my next one. So I'm going to turn it back over to Mary. Yeah, so I'm curious, actually, if you've read this one. Okay. Um, so it's a science fiction series by Ed Brubaker. Yep, I know exactly. Um, and Warren Police with Philip Bond. 
Okay. What's the name of it? Um, it's called The Dead Enders. No, actually, I have not. I know I'm an Ed Brubaker fan. You know I'm an Ed Brubaker fan, but I have never read that. Now I'm curious. It's set in a post-apocalyptic future in New Bethlehem, USA, which I always like to think of as just a town over top of the ruins of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, because I think that's a funny concept. Um, and it features um, what I think is really interesting and you might really like because you're more of a 20th century history guy is mod culture um, among the characters. Um, it's a 16 issue series. Um, and so after what is colloquially known within the within the series as the cataclysm, um, New Bethlehem is segregated between its center sector where something approaching normal life is maintained by artificial sunlight and then the oppressive crime-ridden suburbs and outlying districts, which are home to a new religion called Doomsterism. Um, and the story follows a teenager who is extremely egotistical, as many teenagers are, named Bartholomew Biesenbach, who goes by Beezer, um, who begins experiencing otherworldly visions of a place that is definitely not this city. Um, and through a bookseller friend, he gets... Um, put in touch with a girl from the city center who is also having similar visions and the two of them convince a guy named Dr. Horatio Gago um, of a of a actual organization that I kid you not is called the Diabolical Science Corps <laughs> to explain the visions to them um, and he believes that all of these people who are experiencing these visions are being yoked to a machine that maintains a piece of this cataclysm, um, which was originally a time travel experiment called Wrong. So like the tagline of Dead Enders is no past, no future. Um, so they it's sort of like stuck in this eternal state of limbo. It's so cool. Now you got me interested. Um I, I'm kind I'm curious to read this. I I I love it. It reminds me a little bit um now this is going to sound so weird because i'm not a movie person mm -hmm. um but my friends in college we would watch terrible movies on purpose and one that we watched was called little evil and this remind it, it they had the similar vibes you got me convinced i'll, I'll go pick that up i'll make it up higher on my list now to go read because now you got me curious um, and just because, too, the next one I have on my list, I actually got married to read this month, fans, and I am so happy that she actually read this with me. I'm um, not watching the movie. Yeah, I know. I know. I've heard that many times now. <laughs> it is Road to Perdition. And, of course, this is a short story written by Max Allen Collins, and it's a black and white tale about 1930s gangster time everything like that about a father and a son um mike sullivan to be exact um who his son witnesses a hit um he is a hitman for a irish family mob um and he his son goes with him on one trip after being dared by his younger brother and witnesses a hit that his dad's involved in and of course his dad finds him and of course tries to tell him to promise but of course the family does not take very well to it and they put a hit on him and his family well 
his wife and his younger brother or the younger son is shot and killed. Um, and it is the Irish Mods family's main boss's son that does the hit. Um, it's only Mike Sullivan and Mike Sullivan Jr. that are on the run. And Mary and I, we've talked about this many times. I love that it incorporates a lot of history into it. You have Al Capone, Nettie, um, Elliot Ness. You do have people like that that do kind of give you that vibe of 1930s. Um, there are things that are really bad about this story. Um, of course, like the makeover that he just pulls off a mask and does the Mission Impossible in 1930s. Um, Honestly, he's... most of Sullivan Sr. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But it is a great tale of pretty much his road to revenge. Um, listen to this because I never knew what the word perdition meant. And Mary explained that to me very well. And now that story makes 10 times more sense, especially in the comic, than it does in the movie. Um, because the movie it was like a sense of peace afterwards. And then, of course, there was a hitman who comes after him and shoots him. But this story really tells, it's like we said, there are great scenes with him, though. Like, I, one of the scenes that still pop in my head is the swing scene when he's talking to him about what he does to Junior. And the fact that he, this is all he's known to do. And it, it it's, there are great scenes in it. There are it's very graphic. This is not one for kids. So please, any Vertigo comic really isn't for kids. Yeah. But, but it's Road to Perdition is a great revenge tale. It is a great uh, black and white story, history story. We enjoy it. Um, I know, Mary, we finally got you to read it. So I'm not going to ask you what you think about this story. Fans, if you really want her to, tune in in a couple weeks because that will be released. And Mary will tell you all about it and and what she loved and why she won't watch the movie. Because um, <laughs> there is a movie that was based around it, but they do change a lot of things. There are some things that still stay intact from the book to the movie, but there are a lot of things they redo. And the movie still, I still enjoy the movie, but again, it's one of those things like if they would have named it something else, I think I would have liked it to, you know, now reading the comic, I would probably liked it 10 times better. And I probably could have convinced Mary to watch the movie if they named it something else. But it's still a great story. I still enjoy it to this day. Um, this was part of their Vertigo crime. Um, so it was another branch off Vertigo comics and they did crime. And this is kind of one of their big ones they did. Um so yeah, Road to Perdition um, made one of my spots here. So I'm going to turn it back over to Mary to go over her next pick. Yeah, so I'm actually going to open this this pitch with a question. Have you ever wondered, what if the Beatles had superpowers? <laughs> Brandon knows exactly what comic I'm talking about now. <laughs> well, fans. Um, if you have asked yourself that question, I have a comic for you. Brandon is losing it. I hope you all know this. I just love how you pitch it. <laughs> I, I, listen, it's, <laughs> how, how else would you pitch this comic, Brandon? 
I don't know. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> the best pitch I've heard. <laughs> um, so it's, this is a six issue limited series. Uh, it's a 2008 um, comic, which I think is the funniest part about this is that this comic has the most like 90s energy of a comic I've touched in a while. And it's from 2008. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the series is written by David Tishman uh, with the art by Glenn Farby. Fabry, sorry, I, I dyslexic a little bit there, I guess. And so the main characters of this comic are are a band called The Mates, which learn more British slang. And, and just to confirm, let the fans know the books. I don't think we picked up what the book name was. Oh, yes, sorry. The book is called Greatest Hits. Mm -hmm. Um and it it is so clearly just what if the Beatles had superpowers and then they wrote a six issue comic series, um. And there there are significant parallels with the Beatles, significant. Um, one of them even looks like, like like Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time, but yes, that does come right back up in my head. It's either Paul or Ringo. I don't I don't remember. They all look the same to me. Um, but it's one of those two specifically that that guy looks like. Um, and he's the guy in the upper left of the cover of the first issue. Like I can see his face so clear. I'm like, that is just one of the Beatles. <laughs> um and and so now the the creator of this team tishman he he has insisted for a very long time now that there's a lot more to this comic than what if the beatles had superpowers and i am not 100% certain that i believe him but i appreciate the moxie <laughs> and um he is quoted as saying the persona of the mates is an iconic one for both superhero teams and rock bands you're always going to have the really cute one. You are going to have the quiet one. You're going to have the spiritual one and you are going to have the goofy one. That's the case from every group from Justice League to NSYNC. As a direct quote from David Tishman. And um, just like the Beatles, by the way, um, there were originally one of the characters was different at the start. So much like there was Pete Best, who was um in the Beatles right before they took off. Um, there was Gollum, who was then replaced by Zipper. Zipper is Ringo. Uh, he's also the only actual like super super power like he he's he's the only one whose powers are like inherent to him specifically um so there's there's solicitor who has no actual powers but he's a good martial artist because apparently we needed that um there's crusader who is the superman equivalent um and though while strong and invulnerable he can't fly just like original superman uh, but he's also like Captain America-esque, but only in like the Eli Bradley way and not in like the Steve Rogers way. 
Um, so he's the result of a super soldier program that his father was part of, which didn't work on him, but the powers apparently appeared in his kid. The Who is Tommy called? Um, I think they might like a word. But, um, and then there's Vizier, who is basically Dr. Fate. Like, I think he actually is Dr. Fate. Um, but he's also a druid. It has mystical powers that are drawn from the earth. Um, but I, what I really love about this is because I really enjoy watching, like, classic rock band documentaries because i think they're they're fascinating is how these groups come together and stay together and like what drives their music and how they interact with like the world when you reach that level of fame that like rock stars could back in the day um and so it's told through come together which is like a behind the music like documentary looking back on the team by one of their kids so it sort of looks at the history of this fictional universe through decades with each decade bringing like its own type of like superhero. Um, now I, I will say, ultimately this does boil down to what if the Beatles had superpowers? And I appreciate Tishman's moxie but I am here for the concept. <laughs> and it is true what people have said about the pacing and the dialogue, which is that both are um, a little mediocre. <laughs> but I enjoy this comic. And I think you should give it a shot if only for the novelty of reading what if the Beatles had superpowers. <laughs> Which I like to think is what, what Rush is in the real world. And I'm going to turn it back over to Brandon. So my last one I'm going to bring up is, I told you I was going to get to a Jeff Lemire story. Now, this is not your typical story you get with him because it's based around a very iconic horror character created by H.G. Wells. And I'm talking about the Invisible Man. Um, but I'm going with the nobody. Now, let me kind of give you a little bit of history with DC, what it has here for the graphic novel. Um, there's this tiny isolated fishing village of largemouth, never saw much excitement until the arrival of the stranger that is wrapped from head to toe in bandages and wearing weird goggles. He quietly took up residence in the sleepy town's motel. Driven by curiosity, the town folk quickly learned the tragic story of his past and of the terrible accident that left him horribly disfigured. Eventually, the town embraces the stranger as one of their own, but do his bandages hide more than just scars? I love this story mainly because of the art. Now, Jeff Lemire does the writing for this, plus he does the art. And he does phenomenal in this. It's like a great... I, I do really love his art in this. Now, that you have read in The Nobody. Yes. Yeah. I enjoy that blue tint he gives it. It's really, it's really different, but it works. And the story is just a really creepy tell because you don't know what's behind the mask. You don't know what they're seeing is truly... We see it. But you see the townspeople not really think of it. 
So it's really fun to watch these guys really kind of see how how they come to tuition. Now there is a woman that does follow them a little bit more than most and really becomes like really like his only friend. And it's really interesting to really see how that tale really is portrayed. But again, it's it's shrouded with mystery. And that's what I love about Jeff Lemire. And I think he does really good. Now, I know a lot of fans do not like this story. I enjoy it. Always liked it. Yeah, it's, you know, again, not everything Vertigo puts out is going to hit everybody. But I love this whole story that's shrouded in mystery. You don't know what this is or who this person is. You don't know what he's coming. Like I'm sorry, the cover alone is what would catch my interest. Alone with a man with bandages around his face. I'm sorry. I'm going to draw interest. Yeah, I wouldn't have read Doom Patrol if I didn't get draw interest on a man wrapped up in bandages. But it's the point. It's a fun story that Jeff Lemire does, and he's just phenomenal. And the nobody really explores things of identity, fear, and paranoia. And that's what I love. And I think Vertigo was the best place to put this. Again, another story that it's it's... It's a, more of a thriller. Wouldn't you agree, Mary? Or would you figure more like a horror kind of base? I figure more thriller suspense. I would go thriller suspense. Yeah. Um, but it's just a or fantastic story. The art alone, if you love just reading it for art, like I've said before, this is a story for you. The art is phenomenal. It, the, it's like Mary says. He, he, he draws differently to the point that it's like, I kind of like it. It's different. It's... It's and like when I earlier when I was talking about Lumiere with Sweet Tooth and his art is when I said there's something wrong there. I don't mean the art is bad. I mean that the way he draws people, um, they're haunted in like the way that like Lemony Snicket defines haunted, where it's like something dark has taken up residence there. Um, and whatever is happening there is way more interesting than if the art was like Dan Mora's. Right. I love Dan Moore's art. I think he's phenomenal. Um, but like sometimes you need weird lines. And I love Lemire for his weird lines. Now that will end my list. So I'm going to turn it back over to Mary to go over her last pitch. For I have four more. Okay, go right ahead. We can go right. <laughs> um, wow, that's yeah, I think you. I think we. I think you forgot how long this was. <laughs> Um, so my next one, and I'm actually surprised Brandon didn't list this one, is House of Mystery Volume 2. What drew me to this is that, like, I'm obsessed with the actual physical House of Mystery. Mm -hmm. I think it's the coolest thing in DC Comics. <laughs> I want it. I, I, I'm obsessed. You'll buy it. You'll buy I it. would buy it. I would buy it. Um, although that's not how the House of Mystery works. It would have to choose me, and I aspire to be spooky enough for it to want me to live there. It is. And what, what I really love about it is that, like, the House of Mystery has a volume one that is named House of Mystery. However, the House of Mystery only, the actual physical House of Mystery appears once in volume one of House of Mystery and it appears more in volume two and it's an actual like sequential plot device in volume two um and this is this is a this is a 40 
two issue plus two annuals ongoing run. Um, this is Lila Sturgis, Bill Willingham, and Luca Rossi. And I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but like the house, the House of Mystery, like picks where it's going to be. Like, and yeah. and one of one of the one of the quotes that I I've really loved from it, and it comes from the first issue of this run, and it's said by by Cain, like like the biblical Cain, like like the one that kills his brother, right? Um, and it says, "For even though all mysteries contain secrets, not all secrets contain mysteries," and it's something I've always loved as being something like adjacent to dc comics okay. so like they're connected but like by a thread like these are things like but the house of mystery due to its very nature is like constantly in and out of limp it's like in and out of right. what is happening in vertigo and is in and out of what is happening in mainstream dc and what I really love about this is that, like, the actual story, so, like, the House of Mystery is Cain's house. And this whole saga begins when, so Abel has the House of Secrets, and Cain has tea with his brother and then kills him mm -hmm. for tradition. Um, and then Cain returns to his own house to find that it's missing. And th this is where things just get interesting because this is a house with a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. And it becomes like the quintessential plot driver of the whole narrative. And I, I think so often in stories, we tend to think of the setting as less important. The setting is there to be a place for characters to be but in house of mystery the setting itself is also a character in so many ways and that's something i really love about volume two especially is how cool it is if you do buy that house though you better keep a guest room for me because oh absolutely absolutely okay um I'll... i'll i i have to i have to knit my raven skull cardigan first before yeah. i can own it though <laughs> um i have a pattern picked out and everything i'm ready i just need the yarn <laughs> but um so my next list is actually and this is one that i'm also surprised you haven't read because it's heavily it's it's like fantastical inspiration from american history um and so this is it's called Industrial Gothic. It's by Ted McKeever. And he does the, he writes it, he does the art. He is also doing all of the colors. So he's pretty much doing the whole shebang. He's doing all of it, but lettering and editing. Um, letters are done by John Workman, and the editors for this were Axel Alonso and Lou Stasis. Um, and it's a five-issue limited series. Um, and it really, and as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking, we were talking about Doom Patrol, is that like 
the ugly laws are particularly interesting to me. And these ugly laws um, are basically a way for disabled people and those who are considered um, like undesirable by society to be punished with fees or jail time for existing in public. And it can prevent these people from being employed at all. Um, and so this is a story that functions off of that true past, but brings light to it by setting it in a dystopian society. Mm -hmm. So it follows two main characters, Pencil and Nickel, um, who are two inmates in a prison in this society in which ugliness is a crime. Pencil was born in the prison. while Nickel was incarcerated because she has no arms or legs. So it is literally specifically calling out these, these laws. Um, and they decide to escape um, in order to find a somewhat semi-mythical place that's called the Aluminum Tower, um, where in theory, everyone's accepted no matter what they look like. So it's a quest for acceptance in face of this horrific world they live in where due to just the nature of their birth and their existence they are never going to be welcome and this is another one of those comics much like doom patrol where it very much is looking at disability and going how we treat these people is a disgrace that i'll be honest i have never I have never even heard of. So you got my answer. Um, it was it was one that I found. This, again, I can't I can't recommend comics by like a weird number of academic historians. Good job, teacher. I was at a <laughs> conference. I was at a conference. I was at the American Historical Association's annual conference. And a lady who was trying to get me to go to the grad school she works at was like talking to me about things I was interested in and uh, I was telling her about what I was looking into doing for grad school and she was like well you should read this book <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember her name now and I feel really bad but if you're listening um, it we apologize um <laughs> she she works she works at Virginia Tech or she worked at Virginia Tech in 2020 um and she writes books on olfactory history which is so cool um but I have two more Okay. Um, and wouldn't you know it I have another J.M. David Tyus book <laughs> what's the book come on now Um. so this one is by J.M. David Tyus it's illustrated by John J. Muth and Kent Williams I love Kent Williams we've already had his art here before and also um, with George Pratt and it's inspired by a song Um, by Cat Stevens, it's a 1970 single called Moonshadow, which is the name of the comic as well. Okay. Um, and it's a eclectic and quirky fairy tale that like satirizes fairy tales while also dealing with like philosophical questions about the nature of like existence mm -hmm. um so it's told through the character moonshadow 
who at this time is 120 years old, who is looking back on his earlier life. Um, and the action concerns the events leading to the awakening of Moonshadow, um, who is a child of a heavy mother and an alien father. Um, the alien looks like a fushigi with a bad face drawn on it in Sharpie. <laughs> um, the I, I was I was looking to see how other people described it because that's immediately what my brain goes. Ah, yeah, Fushigi. Um, and the wiki says the alien who resembles a glowing orb of light bearing a stylized human face. Stylized, all right. Um, it looks evil. <laughs> um, so um, Moonshadow's mother was abducted by this alien along with her black cat named Frodo. Um, Moonshadow was orphaned at approximately age 15 and he becomes friends with a furry creature who is vaguely humanoid named Ira. And Moonshadow, Ira, and the cat Frodo set out to find a life for themselves in the stars. And it's a really interesting coming of age story because it's told from the perspective of the character from when they were much younger. Mm -hmm. um, and so throughout the story, um, Moonshadow loses his innocence, but he eventually does like make peace with the world that he lives in and has to like reconcile with how just terrible his father is. Um, and these are sorts of like philosophical questions that get raised. It's, it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting book um it feels like something that would be adapted by jim henson which is why i love it um like this to me is like up there with like dark crystal and labyrinth in terms of like stories that could have a really cool puppet heavy adaptation mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a very i'm realizing now a hyper specific genre of media <laughs> it, it appeals to me and it's another vampire book of course <laughs> um i saved it for last because it's it's my favorite i'm not gonna lie um and I, I think i think it's really funny because this is like the most controversial book that i have on my list because it actually had like a legal controversy like this went to court <laughs> <laughs> And it, it's called uh, Damphir Stillborn. Um, and the series was created by um, Nancy A. Collins and was painted by Paul Lee. So the art is gorgeous. Um, it is so layered and textured. It's incredible. Um, it follows this main character, Nicholas Gaunt, who is half vampire, half human. So he's a damn fear. Um, and so he's mistaken as a stillborn until an orderly who took him to the morgue discovered otherwise. Um, he develops into a troubled child, exhibiting behavioral problems that are not unassociated with um, 
becoming a serial killer, such as the death of small animals, mental health crises, fighting, and he, he bit another student's neck. Um, he is at some point committed to a psychiatric ward who uses hypnotherapy, um, who unlocks this memory of him having an older sister who tried to kidnap him. <laughs> um, and he finds out that this older sister of his is a vampire. Um, Essentially, um, Gaunt Nicholas he discovers that in order for him to become a full vampire, he has to commit heinous crimes and suffer a violent death. And he's like, I am on it. <laughs> and um, rising from the dead, he's he's greeted by these other vampires who are like, Hey, are you ready to go meet Judas? Um now there was supposed to be a sequel um one has not been published um the sequel was planned in 1997 the sequel has been planned for um longer than i've been alive and it still has not happened but um this is a very fun book. I think a lot of the the controversy is the fun bit for me. Um, because there is an unpublished comic book at the time called Matchsticks, um, where its creators, Francis Hogan and Daniel Masucci, filed a federal court copyright complaint of infringement and idea misappropriation against DC Comics for having published Stampier Stillborn. Um, the grounds for the suit were claiming that because both books had half vampire, half humans that had the same name, keep in mind Nicholas Scratch is just another name for the devil in folklore. Um, so they were like, let's take that guy and then the word gaunt and we'll just make a name. And two people decided to do that. And they were like, this is clearly copyright infringement. And also we're, we're, copy, we're coming in on the blade pipe. Yeah. so we're doing vampires they're like obviously we're not in the wrong it's this pre already published book <laughs> and um they had made a professional submission to dc in 1994 um to the editor who would then work on damn fear stillborn um after the book was like already almost finished keep in mind um, and so the case was originally dismissed in part, but the copyright infringement claim was held up and then, um, a motion for reconsideration was made, um, who reviewed both books thoroughly. Like she, this judge actually read the books and was like, yeah, they are not similar. Um, and there was legitimate proof that the books were created independently. And so she was like, this is stupid. We're done. Um, which I think is hysterical as a legal dispute. Um, but I I really enjoyed Dan Fear because what I what I loved about it is so often 
in a lot of these we're seeing vampires that are becoming less monstrous right we're moving away from like dracula being the villain to dracula being romanticized and even in like so so many different kinds of horror media the vampire the vampires being sexualized the vampires being romanticized and what they're doing here is they're going did you forget this thing kills people <laughs> did did you forget this is a a bloodthirsty monster that wants to eat you its goal is death <laughs> and they did it in such a cool way um again the art is fantastic um and i i don't know i think there's there's just some really cool like there's something really neat i think about starting a book where you think the character's going to be a hero and then watching them go oh I just have to kill a bunch of people and I'll get what I want, which is more power. And then they just do it. That is so captivating. Or again, also a 90s comic, mm -hmm. like 96. Like this is like not really what we were seeing in 96, especially from DC. Right. Because like this is like Arsenal mini era and not like we're we're not really seeing a bunch of comics from dc or even like vertigo has some but their guys were still good in the end right. damn fear was like what if he got worse what if he was irredeemable from the start <laughs> and that's again not something you would really see dc do other than if you want to go how jordan parallax situation but again yeah but like i'm gonna be so honest he was yeah, I would also kill the guardians. <laughs> I know you would. I know in you. a heartbeat. Let me add them. <laughs> but I think this is a good place to end this podcast off. Um, fans, let us know if there are stories that you feel that we forgot about and you would like to pitch them to us and what we should read. Um, tell us what you think about our picks. We want to hear back from you guys and see what you guys feel. Do you like Moonshadow? Because like no one I've spoken to knows it exists. <laughs> and you know what fans we appreciate it it's been a great year so far and we're looking for to do more next year with you guys as well we have a couple more episodes coming out after this and also keep watch of our week or weekly podcast on youtube called 52 um, where we go over each issue of the 52 series um, that's coming to an end as well but Again, fans, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Comic Talkers. Also, check us out for other great um, comic book and anime content on Spotify for podcasters, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell notification so you never miss an episode. Without further ado, my name is Brandon. And I'm Mary. And may comics always be the top of your discussion.